A baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine, your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. On this episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be delving further into mental health. We'll be interviewing Dr. Mac Black, MD, who's an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He's an attending at Harborview Medical Center on the Consulting Psychiatric Service. With him is Dr. Brian Porschla. Dr. Porschla, MD, is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral medicine at University of Washington School of Medicine attending psychiatrist at Harborview Medical Center and director of intake and brief intervention services, the psychiatric unit, and a consulting psychiatrist. Well, welcome Dr. Black and Dr. Porsche. We have previously reviewed depression. We've reviewed a bit about suicide. But mental health encompasses so much more. I really wanted to do an additional episode to look at some of the things that you may be encountering. We had uh, reviewed the potential of talking about anger management and why men get themselves in such trouble, some gun violence, anxieties. What are some of the things that you both see? You're obviously here in a very acute setting with people who get here because they really are in need. But we also might explore just why people might want to see a psychiatrist who are doing pretty well but have things that bother them. Take it away. Where do you want to start? Well, you're you're right, Rich. We work in... a very high acuity environment. So we see some people that are in big trouble. I think one of the things that I want to make clear is that some of those people had no idea how quickly things could escalate. And I've, I've seen some people who are, you know, family men, have you know, kids and marriages and homes and careers, and they still, you know, can injure themselves very severely under the kind of the perfect storm of stressors. And I'm happy to, to try to illustrate some of those stories. Um, I also work in another setting in the adult medicine clinic where you know we're seeing more kind of day-to-day manifestations and trying to get people engaged into treatment that can be helpful for them. So I'd like to share a little bit of those experiences as well, just what it what it takes to, to cross that threshold to to meet with somebody to, to start looking for some assistance. I think Max is right. We do see people who have become very ill. I must say, you know, we've seen a lot of people and heard a lot of stories, and nothing really can phase us in that way. But I would say that Max right, getting help sooner rather than later is always a good thing. 
Let's go back to Dr. Black. You laid a scenario where things rapidly unwound for somebody. Is this something that where somebody went through life and dealt with stress and everybody has various types of stress in their life, everybody's busy? Or were there warning signs that somebody's going through stress management was difficult for them? I mean, is somebody here who all of a sudden had something just happen or was this sort of a life process? You know, somebody listening is going, well, how, how does that happen? Take us back to somebody's case going kind of maybe through their life a little bit. To illustrate a case that's kind of an amalgam of different individuals so as to protect to their privacy, one kind of case that I've seen a number of times here in the acute care setting where I'm working with surgeons and internists, like had a very substantial stressor at work and combines that with some liability to alcohol overuse and a tendency to internalize and um, try to cope with their problems on their own rather than reaching out to connect with other people. You know, often those people would be their family members, um, their colleagues. When people, especially men, feel like they need to do it all on their own and suddenly are totally overwhelmed by a situation. I've seen some people that have, you know, cut cut themselves in ways that they have a very hard time healing from. It's a very scary situation for them to be in. It's a very scary thing for their families. I've seen some people that didn't think that they were going to survive the injuries that they did in a moment of desperation. And, and then we help them to see like how to kind of put things back together again on the other side of an event like that. Besides injuring themselves, what other ways might somebody present? At Harborview, we have kind of a unique opportunity because this is a major trauma center. We see people from a multi-state region who have had pretty severe gunshot wounds. This is one of the only places where you can go to recover from that if you need neurosurgery, for instance. A gunshot wound to the head is almost universally fatal, but we see the people who survive those injuries. We see people who have attempted to burn themselves to death. People never imagine they're going to survive these sorts of things. But often, you know, on the other side of it, you know, they, they don't want to die anymore. This, of course, can give a kind of skewed picture of what it's like to seek mental health care because Mac works in a service where he's helping surgeons who are seeing people who have been grievously injured. But we see people in the outpatient department who are, are suffering from various things, anxiety and depression, substance abuse, at all stages along the way. And, and so the point is that I think people can get help, and the sooner they do, the better. If I would make a plea for anything, now while we're on the subject of the ways that people can injure themselves grievously, is that we, we often hear the idea that, well, if, if we only had enough psychiatrists out there, if we only had enough mental health professionals out there in the community to get the people and ferret out all the mental illness and treat it quickly, then we wouldn't have to worry about people attempting suicide. It's not about having guns, it's not about having knives or access to weapons, it's about getting mental health care quickly. And while Mac and I, of course, being psychiatrists, are all for the best mental health care and delivering it to as many people as possible. In fact, our department specializes in services research and in ways to extend psychiatric care to the most people possible. At the same time, when we psychiatrists talk amongst ourselves about preventing suicide, we don't talk about 
if only we could see everybody out there, we could stop it. We talk about preventing access to meat, to dangerous meat. So we talk about how alcohol can set the stage for someone to become suicidal or to act impulsively on suicidal feelings. We talk about access to guns. We talk about access to other weapons. We talk about access to all the kinds of things people can use to harm themselves. I think that's an important element to bring in here, that we psychiatrists do not have grandiose ideas that if we could just see everybody, we would know who would attempt suicide and we could stop it. No, we talk sensibly about keeping guns out of the home and getting help early and seeing danger signals ahead of time. If we could then look at some other issues that guys have, because time is not on our side here, anger management. When do guys step over the line? You know, what, what happens to a guy who is not necessarily angered towards himself, he may be angry at himself, but it, it's displayed towards somebody else? Why does that happen? Well, I, I think one, one way to frame that is what has that person's developmental experience been like? People have a lot of what are called adverse childhood experiences in our business. That's something that we regularly you know, take inventory of, you know, experiences of being abused themselves as children, of witnessing violence around them in their families or their communities. You know, some, in some ways, this is sort of the water that many people and men particularly just swim in throughout their life. And so some of some of the ways to understand when men are violent toward other people or you know, are just violent in general is to put it in context of how they've been the recipient of, of violence themselves. If somebody comes to me who's having trouble with anger, and we have various terms for this, for example, we have this term in psychiatry called intermittent explosive disorder, which really isn't a diagnosis so much as a description masquerading as an explanation. It's not really an explanation of anything. But it's a description of something, a per problem a person might have. But if someone comes to me, if a man comes to me with problems with anger, the framework I'm going to put that in is to say that people get into psychiatric trouble in ways that need to be looked at from four perspectives. So Mac is talking really about what I would call a life story perspective, what has happened to the person over a lifetime and how that might, and what they've learned in that lifetime of lived experience, the things they've learned about how to handle conflict, how to handle anger. Uh, so that would be one way of looking at it. But people get into trouble for other reasons, because of psychiatric diseases, a, a kind of, real problems in their brain and their mind that we would legitimately call a disease, such as bipolar disorder or depression, things that we can treat with medications and other treatments, but that it makes sense to try to cure. People also get into trouble because of uh, things that vary not so much categorically like a disease, but because of their temperament, personality, things that vary on a continuum. These are personality traits that we all have, and we it's not that I have them and somebody else doesn't. It's that the person who's in trouble with them has them to a degree that gets them into trouble. The same trait that I might have, whether, whatever they are. We all get angry at times, but that person might be prone to that as a kind of enduring trait. And then people get into trouble for things they're doing to themselves, behaviors. You know, we see over and over that alcohol and drugs contribute to problems with anger and management. So to sum that up, diseases, 
dimensional traits, behaviors. These are the four perspectives we look at when we try to make sense of why a person's having trouble with anger. Go a little bit into, you're treating these people, we're helping them see insight into their problem, we're giving them a structure, we're helping them develop some tools, but you might use medications. And while a primary care doctor can prescribe antidepressants, a nurse practitioner might prescribe antidepressants. Not the same medication works well for everybody. So in the world of psychiatry, kind of give us a little background into that. So people have heard about antidepressants, of course. They've heard about these medicines like Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, Alexa. These are things we call specific serotonergic reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. SSRIs do many things. One of the things they do is, of course, lift mood and help people with depression, but they can also shift people down a temperament scale of what I would call neuroticism or tendency to strong negative emotions. We all have negative emotions at times. Some people have a tendency to, to stronger feelings than others. Medicines like SSRIs, antidepressants, can mellow people in plain English, shift people away from those strong feelings, and that can be helpful by itself. We also use medicines like lithium and Depakote. These can help people. These are medicines we use for bipolar disorder, but we can also use them for anger management. We use, in our field, we use all of our medicines for everything in some ways. We mix them and combine them in many ways. So it really does depend on complete workup and a doctor choosing one or two or three medicines in the context of that person's whole constellation of problems. But yeah. Matt, you have thoughts? I think uh, like any other medical decision, these are all you know, risk-benefit decisions, and we're, you know, part of our responsibility is to, to choose treatments that are safe and to give people the best information possible about you know, what sorts of side effects they, they might expect or you know, might, might need to endure to, to get some benefit. In the case of medicines, like Brian was mentioning, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, they're, they're very safe. So that, that, does, that kind of calculation isn't a difficult one. It's more about, you know, is it worth taking a pill um, to, if, if it can help over a, a period of, of weeks or so. Um, some of our medicines are, are more difficult, um, especially for people that are, have other medical conditions. And so I think that's, that's where having somebody who has our, our kind of experience with medication management can be particularly valuable. And, you know, and those are the, the people that we end up seeing. We, we tend, you know, 90% of psychiatric medicines are prescribed by primary care doctors and other, other people essentially in a primary care role. So we're tending to see people with more resistant illnesses or multiple illnesses, uh, major medical comorbidities with psychiatric illness. Having said that, I think Mac would agree that we see medicines as, uh, as, for example, in anger management can be very useful and they do have a role, but we never see medicines as the only thing that we're doing for a person. We try to avoid a kind of simplistic push-button remedy approach to uh, emotional troubles or the idea that there's a pill for every problem in life. We certainly don't believe that. And so we always see anger management by definition is a complex problem. And so we always see 
if we are going to prescribe medicines, we see them as adjunctive or part of the solution. But there are other things. So, for example, meditation, relaxation, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, dialectical behavioral psychotherapy, which otherwise known as DBT, something the University of Washington is very good at. Because a, a pioneer of that, Delinahan, was a professor at the University of Washington, and so I think we've gotten pretty good at doing DBT at Harborview and at the University of Washington. We have a lot of people who are quite expert at it. So if there's a listener and they're being treated and don't feel that they're getting the results they want, they should know that perhaps different medication management might be useful to them, along with what you're talking about, which is going back and continuing to work on the In a synergistic way, these medication and psychotherapies come together, and one one plus one is more than two. Okay. And it can take time. You know, we, we, There's no way that we know in advance what may work for an individual. And so a lot of people will say, like, I, I don't want to be a guinea pig. And I think that's a great conversation starter of you know what it means to engage together in a process of finding an effective treatment and being open. Like We, we won't know immediately, and it's... Sometimes even after time has passed, under the best of circumstances, it's still hard to make an entirely objective decision. And sometimes people do need to try a few things before you know it's likely that, that something will be helpful. And that there are, you know, the medicines have, have only this much of a role. So don't distract yourself from the possibility of other kinds of interventions like psychotherapy, I also had like work with couples, families as an important piece of that because you know, especially with anger, when, once it's a safe situation, usually helping somebody to, to work on more positive ways of communicating and you know, helping build relationships that are helpful to them and you know, supporting better function overall, you know, that, that's what's going to help them to stay, kind of recover from whatever has gone poorly to build some resilience in the longer term. So again, going back to an individual who may be listening to this who's maybe having a tough time at work right now or some other family crisis. Perhaps it's a family member and things are not going well or a relationship that's not going well. It seems as uh, there are warning signs that that person might want to know about that's going to keep them from escalating to alcohol or trying to cover their problems or... Where, where could you intercede before somebody gets to that point where they're trying to harm themselves? I think what, one of the biggest warning signs that kind of runs away from people quickly is if they're having trouble sleeping. That's kind of a common factor in, in so much of health in general, and it tends to destabilize any mental health condition and, or create sort of new mental health problems. So that, that would be a clear threshold for looking for help. Another thing, just on, on the subject of kind of how, like, what, what could be on the menu in addition to not having, you know, dangerous things around and not using substances to cope with stress would be, you know, there, there's an epidemic of loneliness in our country, and a lot of the people we see, they don't have anybody to turn to, you know. We ask people, you know, who can we call that, you know, might be able to help you out or can tell us a bit about you and a lot of our patients say there's nobody and so building some sort of 
safety net of social connections, I think is, is a key thing that is kind of a foundation of mental health, just ways to, even if you have you know, a friend you can talk to about some things, you know, can you talk to them about a real crisis? You know, could you talk to your spouse about a real crisis? Can you talk to you know, your coworker about a real crisis? And often you need more than a few people to have a robust network. So not isolating yourself, not turning to substances, would be a way to help turn direction that could escalate into self-harm. Mm-hmm. Somebody says, I just don't have anybody. In our prior episodes with mental health, we spoke about the availability of crisis clinics and a hotline. If somebody feels that things are escalating, go to a clinic. They're available? There are various clinics available. At Harborview, we have outpatient services. We have a full array of addiction and mental health services. People can call hotlines, crisis intervention lines. And so, yes, there's, there's plenty of services available at Harborview and elsewhere. But before somebody has a crisis, if they can build a support network, not become isolated, that can help just manage issues of life. Do you see people after they've been here who are then able to construct support groups and support structures for themselves in their lives? Or is somebody who's coming down this path have a personality where it's just very difficult for them to do that? I think we we see people in both of those groups. I think the the first category, people who can build support structures, often they've chosen, often out of shame, they've chosen to isolate themselves about specific problems, or they're spending all of their energy kind of keeping up a, a false identity, you know, who's, who's competent and, you know, still meeting all of the those masculine ideals that our culture enforces, and being able to talk to the people that they could rely on for some support and allow themselves to have some vulnerability and acknowledge, like, I, I can't do this alone. Usually that's that's something that can happen in terms of, you know, the time that we're seeing them in a hospital setting. And I think that, that often is kind of a key factor in somebody's ability to create some safety resources and and get through a crisis. And, and usually they feel tremendous relief in doing so. So you might, in intervention, help somebody acquire a skill set or the tools to be able to help build that network? Certainly. We rely not just on uh, the patient coming to us, but the patient's loved ones, people who know them well, helping us to fill in the gaps. And we take a history. So when a person comes to me, and I'm going to try to figure out how they got into trouble and how I can help them get out of it, we take a full history. And what does that involve? That involves a family history of mental illness. It involves a personal and social history in which I'm interested in. We want to understand a person in terms of their entire life and kind of put together the trouble they're experiencing from a bo- in a bottom-up way, instead of simply a top-down way, a checklist of symptoms, where we ask a superficial checklist of symptoms and try to fit that into a DSM framework, which would be kind of a top-down way of looking at it. Rather, we're going to build up from the bottom-up how mental, how their difficulties emerged from uh, the fabric of their life and the difficulties encountered over a lifetime. So you, in essence, by delving into a past, help somebody perhaps see into their structure of mental health from their background, 
from their prior experiences where they can help make corrections once they recognize some of these issues? I think that's a, that's a really well put summary. Yeah, I think patients that we, with whom we go through this process, you know, which, which takes a long time, I mean, this is at least an hour long process and often it occurs over multiple visits. I think people find that really affirming that we're, we're really working to understand who they are and they often haven't had a relationship like that before with the doctor. And I think that that's often a misunderstanding about what psychiatrists do as if you know, maybe we can read their minds and somehow intuit something that they're trying to keep hidden from us to, to do something they won't want or invade their privacy, whereas we're really trying to, to earn their trust and be invited into some of the most difficult things that they're experiencing. Going to true psychiatric underlying conditions, not head injury, but bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, these things aren't always evident from birth. Generally, this is something that arises in development at some point through somebody having a very odd behavior. Yeah, we, one of the things that is kind of not entirely unique, but I think Harborview specializes in is treatment of people in their first episode of one of those more severe mental illnesses. And I think that's, that's one of the most challenging and also rewarding kind of hospital-based procedures that we do. It really brings together all of this formulation, you know, getting a, a deep history, understanding how if often it's a family unit that we're treating, you know, helping the parents to understand what their child is going through, how to communicate with them through this process where everybody is terrified and often... You know, often it's a, you know, the police have been involved or there's been some sort of dangerous situation that's precipitated a hospital stay. Um, and then, you know, but if we can get it right, if we can help somebody to see that there's a role for treatment and to stay engaged once they leave the hospital and to have some kind of safety procedures that the family and the patient can put into place so that when inevitably something stressful comes up, they can kind of rebalance and stay engaged. I think that's, that's one of the most rewarding things that I get to do here. We want families involved. We really do like the family. The old-fashioned idea that a person would see a psychiatrist and it would, it would take place in complete isolation in a kind of confessional booth way and no one else is involved, I think we've gotten beyond that. Lots of psychiatric disorders do declare themselves in childhood. Uh, of course, developmental disorders like autism, but depression, substance abuse, these we do see. We have a whole field called child psychiatry that deals with all the problems. That, and bipolar disorder, mood disorders, schizophrenia, these things can develop in childhood, of course. But they can emerge suddenly or fairly suddenly in young adulthood, too. And that can be a difficult adjustment for the band child who was previously well, goes away to college, and then suddenly develops difficulties he or she never had before. That's a tough thing, and so we want to work with families. We see aging, and I know geriatric psychiatry is yet another branch, and I, I don't know if you want to go into a little background, but as people age, behavior changes, and there become challenges. Uh, some of it's cognitive, some of it's not, but if a listener has a family member that 
gee, dad isn't doing as well as he used to, or mom's not doing as well, or my older brother isn't doing as well, or my neighbor who's getting old. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happens in life spectrum from the senior side? The best science is showing us that brain health and cognitive health has everything to do with our basic medical health and heart health, basically. Good heart health is crucial to good brain health. Eating well, keeping our weight down, not eating sugar-laden foods, taking care of our cholesterol, exercise, all of these things are high blood pressure, keeping our blood pressure under control. If it, if the, you know, just a few basic things. If you're smoking cigarettes, stop smoking and get your blood pressure under control would be like two massive things that would be like the simplest things you could do to make yourself a healthier person. Being a consultative psychiatrist and having a foot in medicine and psychiatry, what are some of the medicines that people should not be taking? What can we sort of pair away? Sedatives, a lot of sleep medicines are not safe past age 60 or so. And there's a very long list of what are called anticholinergic medicines, things like Benadryl, a lot of over-the-counter medicines contain anticholinergic drugs, as well as many prescriptions. We now know that these magnetic anticholinergic medicines like Benadryl increase the risk for dementia. And so with older people in general, as you know, we, we tend to collect medicines as we go through life, and it's amazing in this country how many medicines you can collect if you don't watch it. Very often, you know, a person might be on three, four, five, six, or ten medicines, and when they were 40 years old, that was fine, and when they were 50, it was okay, but then when they hit 60 or 70, it starts to not be okay. And the same medication load is causing problems, cognitively and otherwise. It could be making them depressed. It could be making them confused so that they can develop what we call delirium because the same medicine that work just fine when they're younger are not working as well now. And so it is true. When I see an older person, one of the first tasks I have sometimes is to clean up the, the too many medicines they've collected over their lifetime. And that often goes a long way towards helping a person, getting rid of unnecessary medicine. Let's just go for a moment into patient who's, or just somebody listening, who's doing fairly well, but maybe not being so successful at relationships or having trouble with jobs or you know, they're, they're not happy with their, quote, life in the sense that it's not severe, they're not thinking of harming themselves, but things just aren't working out. Is there a role for mental health professionals just to help somebody sort their way through life's path? There, are, there is, a, of course, I mean, there are, when we say the term mental health professional, there are many kinds of mental health professionals. There's psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, we have here at Harborview, we have people we call case managers who help people navigate our kind of perversely complicated healthcare system these days. So yes, I think one of the ways we help people the most is by working, different specialists working together. So case managers working with psychiatrists, psychiatrists working with psychotherapists. If one can find a clinic where one can see both a doctor and a, and a case manager or a social worker, this can help be very helpful to work with a group of people like that. One of the things that I think I often find myself referring people to in Harborview Adult Medicine System, which is our primary care, or one of our primary care clinics here, is an, it's called the Behavioral Health Integration 
program, which is basically two full-time social workers who are trained as psychotherapists and embedded within that clinic, basically to decrease the threshold for people to see somebody for counseling. And most of what they do is really kind of helping people to, to navigate some of these kind of usual problems more effectively, to provide some support, to help them kind of get over some obstacles, learn some skills, and usually it's a time-limited engagement. So psychiatric intervention isn't necessarily always psychotherapy. So somebody who's specializing in psychotherapy, just go through a little background for a listener who, well, what is psychotherapy? I mean, what is, how is that different from seeing a psychiatrist? It's often not somebody who's trained as a psychiatrist. That's probably the first thing. So there's a lot more psychotherapists in the world than there are physicians, psychiatrists. The focus, as Brian said, is usually on some sort of problematic behavior or thought process. I think there is good evidence that Things like cognitive behavioral psychotherapy and exercise, by the way, can be as effective or more effective than medications for some people. And sometimes it's a combination of an antidepressant and exercise and psychotherapy that can turn things around for a person. Cognitive behavioral therapy. A pioneer in cognitive behavioral therapy, Aaron Beck, figured out a long time ago that to help people feel better, you had to help them to think differently about their lives. So changing feelings involved helping people to cognitively restructure what Aaron Beck called the automatic thoughts they had, kind of automatic negative assumptions they had about themselves, about their failures, about the connections they were making. And so the essence of that is to help people restructure the assumptions they have. And once you change the way they think about things, you help them to feel better. I mean, the, the old idea was, well, let's just talk about your feelings. But DBT and DBT, the idea is to get people to look at how they, the assumptions they have and change the way they think. And practice doing things that reinforce a different set of assumptions in the way they think in a feedback pattern. The feedback with the negative assumptions they have and the feelings they have and the cascaded feelings they have, and that leads to more negative assumptions. And so a good psychotherapist can help a patient take a step back from that, look at that, and change it. I will say, exercise. If I could get more people to just exercise, just walk 40 minutes twice a day, and nothing fancy, nothing expensive, but just get them to get off the couch and get out and exercise, get out in the sunshine, that would go a long way. And in fact, there are a lot of data that show that exercise can be as effective an antidepressant as, you know, medicine any of our medicines. Not that our medicines aren't good too, but it's only part of the picture. You know, in every episode, I think I could go back and listen to probably every specialist refer back to diet and exercise as being important. And so here we are in mental health, and it goes back diet and exercise. You emphasize exercise, but imagine having a good diet also helps your brain. I'd also like to point out sleep is another huge one for mental health again. And sleep is one of the things that a variety of cognitive behavioral therapy is most, one of the very most effective psychotherapeutic interventions in psychiatry 
is CBT for insomnia, basically challenging some people's negative assumptions about sleep or not really about insomnia, how they're not going to sleep, and setting up some very specific kinds of day-by-day or week-by-week goals about when they go to bed, you know, what they do if they can't sleep, when they wake up. The term we use around here is sleep hygiene. I'm kind of old-fashioned, I guess, but it's a good term, and it, it really does mean, you know, look, cleaning up one's act in terms of one's sleep habit. It can be a real slippery slope for people to be seeking out medications that accumulate harms in pursuit of sleep. And then sometimes, you know, looking at medicines and focusing on insomnia can distract people from looking at some real important and treatable medical conditions. Any other thoughts you have uh, or resources for people as we kind of move to closure here? I know in King County there's like a, you can do uh, dial 211 to get some directory of including mental health services. Another thing I'd add, just because we're probably talking to people who you know, may, may not have that severity of concerns and might benefit from some uh, more accessible uh, and, and also less expensive interventions. There's, there's a tremendous um, and fairly new market for like online cognitive behavioral therapy where you can work with, you know, you can work with a therapist that could be anywhere, get practical support. A lot of these are all even self-guided modules, and some of them have have good evidence that they're equal to those delivered by clinicians, and, you know, many of them are much reduced cost, and, uh, you know, it's it's effort-dependent, of course, and there's no substitute in some circumstances to be working with another person that adds something that you can't really recreate otherwise, but if somebody, you know, wants treatment and and that's a good fit, it certainly is much more accessible. I uh, appreciate both of you giving us your time, your knowledge, and I hope that if somebody's listening, if they are feeling that they are not quite where they want to be, that they take advantage of some of your advice. So thank you both very much. Thank you for having me. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance, Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org or visit your physician or care provider.